Naomi with something else? A song? All right, listen, when the picture comes up, just, just shout. Oh, no, hey, there we go. Right, okay. Oh, might be a little bit small. All right, there's a, there's a picture there. Can you see? And I, and I want you to think about three questions. What is it, number one? Where is it, number two? Are you following? Beautiful. And what was the inspiration behind it? In other words, why has someone done that? Now, apart from Kevin and Naomi, um, anybody else got any ideas? Just shout it out. Shout it out. Everyone should be able to get the first question right. What is it? It's a statue. Well done. Becca went, it's a statue. Statue. Now you did, Becca. You're a statue. All right, now here's a slightly harder one, though. Where is it? Shout it out. Outside, but where, 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 any, any, where? No, it's not in Maastricht. Go to anywhere, 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 anywhere. It's in New York. It's in New York. And it's, what it is, is a, is a statue, and it's a statue of a, of a man who's beating a sword into a plowshare, right? And that's what he's doing. He's beating a sword into a plowshare. And where it is, is it sits outside the United Nations building in New York. Silence. Look at that. Here's the worrying thing. I've been there, and I missed it. I didn't even recognize. But that, that statue is, you know, massive high and sits right outside the United Nations building in New York. And where it comes from, the meaning behind it is it come, the inspiration for it is that it's a symbol that comes from a passage in Isaiah 2 verse 4 that says this, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Just hold that picture of that statue. It's gone now, it's gone now. Just hold that. We'll come back to it in a bit. Let me pray. Lord, we want to thank you for your amazing provision, Lord, as we've had testimony of. We thank you for your amazing healing, Lord. We do come before you this morning and we pray, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, you would open up our minds, and that we would hear what it is that you want to say to us individually and as a church this morning. Pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, well, this morning we are carrying on. Uh, we're on week two of our Transformed Living series, which follows on from our Transformed Life series that we did last term. And there is this 50-day devotional guide that goes with this series. So if you didn't get one, do pick one up. Uh, they're available at the back or from down in the office, and then you can go through it uh, over the next 50 days as we are looking at this material together as a church. And the teaching series for both of these, Transform Life and Transform Living, comes from the book of Ephesians. And in fact, in the first, in the first series, Transformed Life, we looked at the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then in the in, the, in this series, Transform Living, we're going to look at the second three chapters 
of the book of Ephesians, or if you like, the second half. And, and really, in those first three chapters, that transformed life, as you remember from last term, Paul is, somebody said, very theological in his approach. He just gives us loads of great stuff, truth after truth after truth. There is fantastic theological truths just pouring off the page line after line. Someone said it's a bit like trying to fill a champagne glass under a waterfall. There is just so much truth pouring out. It's like you can't capture it all in one go. That's the first three chapters. But then in the second half of his letter to the Ephesians, chapters 4 to 6, Paul, if you like, gets a bit more practical. Because you could say the first half of Ephesians is all about what God has done. What God has done. But then the second half of Ephesians is actually more about, in light of all that God has done, what should we do? How should we apply that? How should we respond? How should we live now because of what God has done? It's like in the first three half of Ephesians, Paul has given us as a church this great theological lecture. It's like he's gone through point by point. This is God. This is who he is. This is his character. This is what he's done for you. Ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. And then the second half of Ephesians, it's like he comes around to our house, comes in the back door, sits us down at the kitchen table and says, right, in view of all that, how are you going to outwork it in your life? How are you now going to live in terms of your life with work and husbands and wife and kids and difficulties and issues and joys and mess? How are you going to apply all that into your life? And actually in verse 4 verse in chapter 4 verse 1, Paul starts by writing this. Therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And last week, Quincy explained that we are God's sons and daughters. We are royalty. And now we need to live up to and live out of that calling. It's not that we are trying to live to somehow be good enough to become God's sons and daughters. It is that having been made God's sons and daughters having been adopted into his family because of what Jesus did on the cross, how now should we live out of who God has made us to be as his children? And there are really two main themes that Paul goes into. The first one is unity. In chapter 4, he focuses on unity. And then the second one in chapter 5, he focuses on purity. And so this week, we are going to begin by looking at unity. And specifically, we're going to look at the following verse from Ephesians 4, verse 3. I think I'll put it in your notes. Where Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And we're going to ask three questions. We're going to ask... Why does Christian unity matter so much? Second one we're going to ask is, what is the basis for Christian unity? And the third one is, how can we practically keep the unity of the Spirit? That's where we're heading 
this morning. So let's think about the first one. Why does Christian unity matter? And when I say Christian unity, I'm not talking about Christians kind of being nice to each other, though being nice to each other is very important. I'm talking about something that is much bigger and much deeper. Because actually, Christian unity is part of the whole purpose of God for creation. If you think about the question, what is the ultimate purpose of this world? What is the ultimate purpose for this world? It's like Paul gives us a keyhole. You remember those big wooden doors that maybe you see in films that have got a big key in it? And when there's something going on behind the doors, that somebody would go behind and they'd look through the keyhole and they'd get a kind of glimpse into what was going on in that other room. I want you to picture in your mind that kind of keyhole because actually Paul gives us a keyhole that we're kind of able to look through and see where the future is heading, see what God is going to do one day. And the keyhole is found in Ephesians 1 verse 10. Paul's already said it in the letter. He says this, when times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That is the keyhole. God's plan for the fullness of time is to bring all things to unity under Christ. So as we look through this keyhole of Ephesians 1 to 10, what we glimpse, if you like, what we see is a world where everything is brought back into total harmony, but it's brought back into total harmony because everything has come back under the lordship of Jesus Christ. United under Christ, that is how it will be one day. That is what God is directing things towards. That is what God is wanting to display in the here and the now. But as we know, the world in which we live now is not united. It is not one under Christ. It has been divided into two. God made the world and everything in it to be under his headship, his leadership. But a competitor, if you will, a rebel whom the Bible calls Satan has led this rebellion that's meant that a world designed to be one has been made two. So we don't just have God, but we have Satan. We have the devil. We don't just have good, we have evil. We don't just have angels, we have demons. We don't just have light, we have darkness. We don't just have life, we have death. We don't just have heaven, we have hell. Where we should have just one, we now have two, and that is a massive problem. And it's a problem that has pervaded every inch of this world, so much so that we are used to it. It's the world that we live in. It's the world we understand. We, we are actually used to a humanity that is divided amongst itself, and we are we, 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 we live and understand a, a humanity that is divided between its creator God and itself. But you know, that was never God's original intention. 
It's not how he intended it to be. He made that expressly clear in Adam and Eve when he stated, you know, when they marry, the two are going to become one again. Two becoming one as a man and a woman join in holy matrimony under God is not just a simple arrangement for life. No, no. It is a symbolic depiction of the unity that God intended for all creation. And so the world, if you like, is aching for one, but it is divided in two. And Paul, if you like, I think, encourages us to look through the keyhole in our mind's eye from that verse in Ephesians 1.10 and see clearly that God's purpose for the fullness of time is that everything will be brought back to unity under Jesus Christ. That's what you glimpse when you look into the room of where God is heading everything. So Paul says all things will be brought into unity in the heavenly realms and in the earthly realms. The Bible says in another place, it's like the curtain's going to be drawn back and the glory of the Lord's going to fill the whole universe. In other words, on that day, when that happens, there will truly be what that statue outside the United Nations building symbolizes. There will genuinely be United Nations. But not because we're not going to have United Nations because the politicians, humans, nations have sorted out their differences. Even though that is a great thing to work towards and to pray towards. Let me just give you the heads up. The Bible says that will not lead to United Nations. There will be United Nations when, when Jesus brings the nations, as it were, under his headship. That statue was actually given to the United Nations by the country of Russia. There's an irony here, isn't there, that we pick up. One day, nations will no longer train for war. One day, those swords will be broken into plowshares. Instruments of war will be used for instruments of agriculture. Nations will be in harmony and unity, but let me just say this, it will only happen when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, comes again. And he then makes wars to cease. And he brings about truly united nations under his headship. You actually get other glimpses of this through Scripture. God has put in other keyholes, as it were. How about this one from Isaiah 11, verse 6 and 9? Before Jesus came, prophet Isaiah said this. Now you tell me, is he talking about any kind of land that we know about in the here and now? In the here and now? The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. That's dinner if I'm the leopard. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. Imagine health and safety on that one. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. The young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Isaiah is not talking about any time on earth soon. He is looking through a keyhole and seeing how God will make it one day. And that's what he's giving us a glimpse of. You see, one day, what has become two will be one again. And the question, it leaves us with this. Where can I catch a glimpse of this oneness? Where can I see something of this unity that God speaks will come? Well, actually, that's where we come in. Unlikely players I know in the game. But we come in here. This is where the church comes in. See, the purpose of the, of the church is that God in his people now is doing what will be done in fullness one day. We, the church, are, are a prophetic display of one in a world of two. And that's a high calling. Previously in Ephesians 2 verse 14, Paul has written about Jesus. He himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace who has made the two into one. See, it's happened. It's what Jesus has done. As he saved this person and that person, both of them alienated and separated from God, both of them separated from each other. Jesus saved that one. Jesus saved that one. He's brought the two and made them one. It's started to happen already. And we, that is who we are. In a nutshell, that's the point and the purpose of the church. Two has been made one. So we are this sign. We are this glimpse, this display of the things to come. Which is why Paul is so concerned about Christian unity. Peter O'Brien said, the church is the pilot project of God's purposes, and his people are the expression of the unity that displays to the universe its final goal and ultimate hope. I like that quote. That's why our unity matters so much. Second thing, what is the basis for this unity? Well, Paul explains it to us as he goes on through Ephesians 4, verse 4 to 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul wants us to see that our unity is not just the hope of the whole cosmos, cosmos but it's actually deeply rooted in the very nature of God himself. Do you see how he put these series of sense statements together about God? And that is what forms the basis for our unity. There's one body because there is one Holy Spirit. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ, and therefore there is one faith and one baptism. There is one God, and he's the Father and the Lord of us all. Do you see how Paul is structuring and explaining our oneness around the threeness of the Trinity? It's like he embeds our oneness in the Trinity, the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because within the very being of God, there is difference and there is diversity. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit. It's there, and yet at the same time, there is, he is one God. And so there is harmony, there is unity. And if the whole idea of the church is that somehow we're going to be a reflection, a display 
of the glory of God to a world that doesn't know him. If we've been made in his image to display something of who he is, then guess what? As a church, we need diversity. We need to have people around us that are different from different nations, different backgrounds. We need that because there's diversity in the Trinity. But we also need unity because there is unity in the Trinity. Churches around the world can be very diverse in different areas, especially things like worship. Tongai was here a few weeks ago. Now, I've been in a Zimbabwean Shona-speaking worship service. It's very different than our worship service. But you know, what unites us is not that we sing the same songs. Paul says, no, no, what unites you is that you serve the same Lord. One Lord, one faith, one hope, one God, one Holy Spirit. That's what he's pushing here. John Stott said this, there can only be one Christian family because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about someone that hires a building, puts up a sign outside saying church. I'm talking about the genuine church, which is God's sons and daughters. There can only be one. John Stott says, if the unity of God is unbreakable, then so is the unity of his church. It is no more possible to split the church than it is to split God. That is the basis. The work of the Trinity is the basis for our unity. Now, what a basis and what a privilege. So the third question is, how can we keep our unity? Well, Paul again in Ephesians 4 says this, verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So Paul picks two things. Be humble, be patient. Let's just think about those two things. Because we love, we love being humble, don't we? I mean, I love being humble the most, <laughs> if I'm honest. I, I can't wait to be humble. And we love waiting for things, don't we? I mean, why have it today when you could wait a year? Be humble. Now, being humble is not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Right? It's what it is. I thought I'd give you a few stories. I'll give you a few stories. See, pride is often the thing that gets in and forms a wedge that separates, and what should be one becomes two, because pride has somewhere got in. And so we need to follow Jesus' example that even though he was the king of kings and the lord of lords, he stepped down to this earth. Having stepped down, he got down on his knees and washed his disciples' feet. Jesus didn't think less of himself. He just thought of himself less. If we're going to keep this precious unity in the church, we are going to need to choose to be humble. Which might mean at times we have to say, okay, I've been offended, misunderstood, overlooked sometimes, but... Do you know what? With God's help, I'm not going to take offense. I'm not going to get bitter. I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to keep loving my brothers and sisters. I'm not going to allow what should be one under God to become two. Let me tell you a couple of stories. The first one is a guy called Booker T. Washington, who back in the day was a black educator, and he took over the presidency of the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And he was walking through an exclusive section of town uh, where you basically had to be white to live. 
And he was walking down there and a lady asked if he would like to earn a few dollars by chopping wood for her. He's the president of her and he, he's, he's just walking home, but she mistakes him and do you want to earn a few dollars? Well, do you know what? Professor Washington smiled, rolled up his sleeve and proceeded to chop her wood for a few dollars. And when he finished, he, he took the wood inside and stacked it for her and a little, he then left. And this little girl in there recognized who he was and told the lady. And the next day, this embarrassed woman went to see Booker T. Washington in his office in the Institute and apologized profusely. And he said to her, it's perfectly all right, madam. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. No, Bob. She shook his hand warmly, assured him that his meek and gracious attitude has endeared him and his work to her heart. And not long after, she got most of her wealthy friends together and raised thousands of pounds for Booker T. Washington and his institute. Humble. Humble. How about this one? The, you've all heard of Morse code, I suspect. It was invented by a guy called Samuel Morse. And Samuel Morse, when he invented Morse code, the first message he sent was, what hath God wrought? He was a, he was a believer in God. And he said this when he was asked about, you know, all, all, the, all the obstacles that he had to overcome to, in, to create, invent, what was the telegraph that became the telephone, that became the internet. I mean, this is the guy who started, if you like, all this. And he said, more than once, and whenever I could not see my way clearly, I knelt down and prayed to God for light and understanding. He said this. He said, I made a valuable application of electricity, not because I was superior to other men, but solely because of God, who meant it for mankind, must reveal it to someone, and he was pleased to reveal it to me. This is one of the greatest inventions of modern time. And when asked how and why, he said, I did it because God enabled me to do it. And God enabled me to do it because it should be for the good of mankind. Did you know something about Samuel Morse? He was an American and he was a painter and he was married and he came to England to paint to earn some money. And then he received a letter one day that his wife back in America had died. And he packed up his stuff and he got on the boat and he sailed back home and she was already dead and been buried. Now, if I'm Samuel Morse, I'm getting upset at this point. Do you know what he did? He stopped painting and he decided that he was, gonna, he was going to invent a way where life-critical messages could be transported quickly so that others wouldn't have to go through the ordeal of what he went through. And rather than getting bitter, he got on his knees and humbled himself before God and he created the telegram. Stunning, isn't it? Humble. Humble people. I don't see too many of our great inventors and uh, statesmen and people in the news who are creating great things, really saying, God has enabled me. That was Samuel Morse. Second one, Paul says, is that you're going to need to be patient, to bear with one another in love, not to walk away at the first sign of difficulties or tricky conversations, but to Stay and to be patient. Because you know what? If you were going to stay as one, that is going to require patience. Because often situation and people's characters, including our own, 
do not change overnight. Change happens over time. People grow at, at different speeds. They become more like Jesus, but it's a process. And so we're going to need some patience. Let me read this quote that I found. Patience is a hard discipline. It's not just waiting until something happens over which we have no control. The arrival of the bus, the end of the rain, the return of a friend, the resolution of conflict. Patience is not a waiting passivity until someone else does something. Patience asks us to live in the moment to the fullest, to be completely present to the moment, to taste the here and now, to be where we are. When we're impatient, we try to get away from where we are. We behave as if the real thing will happen tomorrow, later, and somewhere else. Let's be patient and trust that the treasure we look for is hidden in the ground on which we stand. Going to need to be patient with one another if we're going to keep unity. So Paul tells them, if you're going to keep the unity in the church, it's going to take them to exercise two things, which I think many of us find remarkably challenging. To be humble, to think, to think of ourselves, to think less of ourselves, to acknowledge that God is God and only he can do so many things and only we can do what he wants through his power and his grace in our lives. And we're going to need to be patient because his work in us is going to take time and his work in one another is going to take time. But you know, Paul actually uses his own circumstances, I think, to help us grasp how important this is. Because that first quote from the Bible in Ephesians 4 verse 1, I didn't actually give you the first few words of it. Because the first few words of it says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's what Paul says. Because when Paul is writing this to them, he's in prison. He's physically a prisoner. But do you know what? He's also a prisoner, I believe, in his heart and his head to this amazing calling that Jesus has given to us as the church. It's like Paul has been taken captive by this glorious unity that one day will come about. It's like he's looked through the keyhole when he's seen this wonderful unity and what Jesus will, what it will be like when everything is under the headship of Jesus. And it's like Paul has been imprisoned by that. He's so committed to this vision of one that he is not going to sow seeds of two, not going to sow seeds of division or gossip. He is going to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. And so in that sense, he is a prisoner to the Lord. But not because God is punishing him, but it's because God has captivated him. He's given him a greater vision. This unity in the church now, which actually displays and speaks prophetically to the world of a unity to come. And that unity will come when all things and all nations are genuinely united under God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Great, thanks, Kevin.